Good afternoon. My name is Rachel Andrews. I'm the Assistant Collection Manager here at the Georgieson Museum for the Department of Photography. Um, and today I'm going to talk about what is on display in the History of Photography Gallery. Um, so the History of Photography Gallery is an ongoing rotation of objects that um, always come from our collection here at the Georgieson Museum. Um, within the Department of Photography, we rotate uh, who in the department selects these objects, and this time it was my turn. Um, the, uh, sometimes we do some sub-themes to uh, help narrow down uh, the selection of objects. Um, so the history of the gallery is always devoted to the history of photography, but like I said, sometimes we'll select sub-themes um, to help narrow down what we uh, want to focus on. And this time I chose to uh, select works that were all by women, um, makers, artists, um, entrepreneurs, printers, um, and uh, just to give a different perspective of the history of photography. Um, like I said, all of the works are from the museum's collection of over 400,000 objects in the Department of Photography. Um, past themes that have been done in the gallery uh, include something like uh, architecture, black history or culture, or photographs made in Mexico. Uh, women photographers um, have been uh, vital uh, to photography's history in the uh, converging and uh, concurrent movements and processes. Uh, and like previous installations, this version of the history of photography uh, rotation begins in the mid-19th century and continues all the way to the present day. Today I'm just going to go through a few highlights um, of the works. In the 19th century, many women did not have the means to open their own photographic studios. However, many were involved in behind-the-scenes tasks, such as hand-coloring portraits. Nancy Southworth Hawes of the renowned Southworth and Hawes daguerreotype firm assisted her brother, Albert Sands Southworth, in daily operations and coloring daguerreotypes before Josiah Johnson Hawes, her future husband, became her brother's business partner. The image here on the screen shows a whole plate daguerreotype with applied color um, that was created by the daguerreotype firm. While Nancy Southworth Hawes isn't explicitly credited in the coloring of the plates, um, it wasn't necessarily common for women at the time to be credited for their work in a commercial setting. Uh, this daguerreotype serves as an example of the type of work done by the daguerreotype firm. Um, I highly recommend looking at this object up close. It's really uh, beautiful. You have to look at it in just the right light, and the colors are very subtle and brilliant. And this is uh, just an image of Nancy Southworth Hawes. This is a daguerreotype um, at the uh, Metropolitan Museum's collection. Just to give a face to the name. And throughout the 19th century, as photographic technologies progressed, women continued as colorists at photographic studios. Like daguerreotypes, Amber types and tin types were often hand-colored or overpainted to give the impression of natural color. These photographic processes were appealing to consumers because they were much less expensive than daguerreotypes. Uh, the screen here kind of gives an impression that these are all large objects and maybe the same size, um, but they're not. Uh, the top image on the screen is a ninth plate. Um, 
The one on the right is a half plate, the bottom is six plate, and the one on the uh, far left is a quarter plate. Um, just a fun fact about the one on the left, this one was also collected by a female photographer, or sorry, a female uh, collector of photography. Um, she was collecting photographs uh, in around the uh, 1950s um, and was a high school teacher out in California. Uh, mo a lot of her collection came here and another part went to the Bancroft Library. And while women were involved with behind-the-scenes tasks of photographic production, they were rarely had the uh, resources to operate full-time uh, commercial photographic studios on their own. <coughs> the maker of this photograph here on display in the gallery, um, uh, the maker is an example of a rare 19th century woman who did open uh, and run her own photographic studios. Her name is Genevieve Elizabeth Desdery. She uh, first assisted her husband, André Adolphe Eugène Desdéry, with the production of photographs at his studio in Brest, France. And if you're at all familiar with um, the history of photography, um, you might recognize his name. Um, he was the uh, person who patented the photographic format called the carte de visite. A carte de visite was a photograph printed onto paper and then mounted onto a thicker board or cardstock. The bottom row of images here um, show the final product of what a carte de visite or CDV was. <clears throat> These are approximately three and a half inches tall by two inches wide. The top row here shows uh, an uncut sheet of uh, carte de visite portraits, how they were initially produced. Um, so in this uh, instance, the uh, photographer used a camera with eight different lenses. Uh, and what you could do was expose all eight lenses at the same time, or you could cover up seven of the lenses at a time, for example, and expose one at a time, which is why you see some of the uh, poses are the same um, and some are slightly different. And then uh, <clears throat> they were all exposed onto that same sheet of paper um, and uh, after the processing, the portraits were then cut out and mounted onto a card. When uh, André Adolphe Eugène Desdéry fled the city for political reasons, uh, Jean-Vivre Elizabeth Desdéry continued to run the studio. In addition to creating carte de visite portraits for clients, she initiated her own photographic project to document the landmarks of the city of Brest. And the image on display, again the one on the far left, um, shows the military port of Brest, France. The bottom image is also from the same group that she produced, and that is of the Abbey of Sametu. And the far right image shows the Church of Brest. She uh, created a negative onto a glass plate and printed the photograph as an albumin silver print, uh, the same process in which CDVs were also produced. Like Desdere, Julia Margaret Cameron used the wet plate process to create albumin silver prints. The photographic plates are coated by hand by pouring collodion, which is a sticky kind of viscous liquid, directly onto the plate while holding it. Um, and then the photographer would move the plate around to coat the entire plate and then pour the uh, rest of the excess liquid um, off. I'm explaining this because it's a handmade process um, which um, 
often would call, leave opportunities for um, streaks or uh, flecks of dust. Um, any kind of debris could get on the uh, the liquid there. And once they were on the liquid or on the collodion, they would then be printed into the final image. Uh, Julia Margaret Cameron was often criticized for the imperfections that were on her plates. Um, you might be able to even see on the screen a couple little dust specks. Let me get the little laser pointer here. Uh, there's one right here, which is in the image. It's not just on the screen. And then there's something on her forehead there. But she, uh, she really embraced the flaws. Um, they kind of became characteristic to her work. Um, she was sometimes praised for um, her artistic approach, even though criticized for uh, her technique. From this same uh, glass plate negative, Cameron made multiple prints. Um, the image on the left here is the one uh, in the Georgieson Museum's collection, um, and it's on display, of course, in the gallery. Um, it has a soft focus because Cameron printed the image with the emulsion side up. So if you think of a piece of glass, it kind of has some depth. Um, and with the emulsion side up, it gave it just that soft focus. Um, and the image on the right of the screen is in the collection at the Art Institute of Chicago. You can see the image is reversed. The shadows on the sitter's face are on the left instead of the right. And here Cameron printed the photograph with the emulsion side down against the paper, leaving a crisper, more detailed image. You might be able to see more clearly the strands of hair um, that are coming across her forehead. Um, or the shape of her eyes more clearly. Cameron even titled these two images different, even though differently, even though they came from the same uh, negative. The photo at the Art Institute, Art Institute of Chicago, again the one on the right of the screen, uh, is titled Julia Jackson. Uh, Jackson is the niece of Julia, was the niece of Julia Margaret Cameron, and interestingly, uh, the mother of the author Virginia Woolf. The photo on the left, the one that we have here in our collection, is titled Mrs. Herbert Duckworth. These portraits uh, were taken just before Julia Jackson married Herbert Duckworth. And Cameron's titling shows her pride in the marriage by using her then soon-to-be-married name, um, but also her pride in her niece as an individual. Cameron took multiple exposures during the same sitting, and in a print from a different negative, so a different exposure, um, she uses the title Stella after uh, a poet called Astrophel and Stella. Um, it's a sequence of 108 sonnets and 11 songs by Sir Philip Sidney, written and published in the late 16th century. And for this negative only, uh, Cameron used the allegorical title for one of the reversals of the plate. Uh, you might be asking why she would print and title her photographs differently. Uh, it's possible Cameron was experimenting with the mood produced by the different ways of printing, a uh, softer, more mysterious feel versus a harsher, more straightforward portrait. The titling could have also been based on the effects created um, from her methods of printing. And this is a, another portrait of Julie Jackson, or Mrs. Herbert Duckworth, taken just before her marriage. Um, she faces the light, which um, illuminates her face, metaphorically possibly suggesting um, Cameron, the enlightenment Cameron thought uh, marriage would bring to her.
And here are just some other examples of Julia Margaret Cameron's photographic work. <clears throat> Excuse me, note the different titles. The top uh, image uh, is an allegorical scene for which she's known to have done many. Um, and it's titled, Wist ye not that your father and I sought be souring, sour, <laughs> sorrowing. <laughs> and the portrait of the woman in the hat is titled Ophelia, study number two, uh, perhaps a study for a later, later allegorical scene. And the bottom center image is of the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, Cameron rarely gave allegorical titles to her portraits of men. Moving right along here, um, Julia Margaret Cameron's artistic approach um, to photography really influenced later working photographers, um, particularly around the turn of the century. Um, those photographers uh, were advocating for photography to be an autonomous artistic medium. And like painting or sculpture um, around that time, photographers would create images with techniques that mimicked other mediums. But in the late 1920s and 1930s, um, photographers moved to a more uh, pure photographic approach um, that encouraged uh, photographs to uh, exhibit qualities that were uniquely photographic. That is, they weren't mimicking other forms such as painting. So uh, previous gum bichromate processes around the turn of the century would have really would have been the hand of the photographer physically painting chemistry onto a piece of paper. And now um, in the 20s and 30s, they were moving away from that. A group of photographers called F64 was founded with these uh, pure or straight photographic um, principles in mind. And Imogen Cunningham, whose image is here and on display in the gallery, was a founding member of F64. You may be a little bit more familiar with the work of Ansel Adams or Edward Weston, who were also founding members. The group's name references a, a small aperture in a camera lens, um, which would render the most depth of field in an image, allowing everything in front of the lens to be in focus. <coughs> the uh, image on the left here is by Ansel Adams. Um, and on the right is by Edward Weston. Um, Cunningham was working in the same manner as these two men um, by fo focusing on the formal qualities in front of the camera. Um, instead of focusing on grand landscapes uh, like uh, Ansel Adams, um, uh, Cunningham brought her camera really close to her subjects, um, which she uh, became very well known for her botanical subjects. And uh, those, the, although uh, these two are of botanical subjects, um, the intention behind these two images is very different, both of which are on display in the gallery, of course. Um, the uh, image in Cunningham's intention, um, excuse me, was more artistic in approach. Um, again, the F64 pure photographic approach. Atkins, Anna Atkins, um, her image is on the left here. Uh, she used a cameraless technique to document botanical specimens of the British Isles in the mid-19th century. She would place specimens on top of a photochemically treated piece of paper and then expose it to light. 
the place on the paper where the object rested would not get sunlight and remain unexposed. Atkins conducted the first scientific study documented photographically, and she also compiled her specimens into the first entirely photographic publication titled British Algae, um, which was produced between 1843 and 1853. In contrast, Cunningham used the natural world to create art. She brings her camera close to her subject matter, removing surroundings and using light and shadow to abstract her subject matter. You can also see the difference in these two approaches in the titling. Atkins' title is very specific and identifies the exact species, in this case, uh, Carex uh, America. And Cunningham's title is merely leaf pattern, ex which explains her intention to capture the pattern of the plant's leaves and how the light ab really abstracts them. I'd now like to transition to another use of photography, <coughs> photojournalism. Photojournalists used the medium as a form of documentation to inform audiences and affect political or social, social change. Margaret Burke White was one of Life Magazine's first staff photographers. Her image, seen here um, on the screen, was the feature on the magazine's first issue. And I included a little um, illustration there in the uh, top right. <clears throat> this photograph is of Fort Peck Dam in Montana, a construction project that was part of the New Deal. This was captured while Burke White was on assignment along the Columbia River Basin. And you can note the two men at ground level here, um, almost probably uh, hard to see um, on the screen here, even though it's really blown up. Um, she used her camera angle to allow the viewer to get a sense of the grand scale of the structure. Life magazine reached a wide audience. In a pre-digital era, newspapers or magazines were key sources for people to uh, consume images, making the work of photojournalists vital in bringing a face to a story. In addition to the industrialization projects that were taking place as part of the New Deal, there was a photographic division called the Resettlement Administration, later renamed the Farm Security Administration, or FSA, that employed 11 photographers to travel across the US during the Great Depression. <clears throat> they went across rural communities, um, again, bringing a face to the Depression. The social documentary photographer Dorothea Lang was one of the FSA photographers, um, and this is her image here that I've selected for the rotation. Uh, she traveled across the rural south and the central valley of California. Um, she took this photograph while, while in Mississippi. In the south, she found the racial power structure of the southern plantations remained intact during the hardships of the time. In this photograph, she uses the angle of her camera to suggest the plantation owner's authority as he seemingly claims ownership of the car and authority over those men behind him. Lang's photographic work, work helped humanize the consequences of the Great Depression. Dorothea Lang was an inspiration for the work of contemporary photographer Katie Grannon. 
Katie Grannon revisited the Central Valley of California, which is the same region that Dorothea Lange traveled in the 1930s. In Grannon's series called The 99, Grannon went down um, along towns along Highway 99, which is how the series got its name, in the Dust Bowl of California. More than 80 years after Lang was commissioned by the government to raise awareness of the widespread poverty in rural America, Grannon continues the work by capturing images of people living in these areas who remain unrecognized. Grannon's, uh, which he calls street portraits, are a spontaneous collaboration between subject and photographer. She uses stark white walls um, and blinding sunlight to emphasize the individuals being photographed. Grannon's mother-daughter composition is evocative of Dorothea Lange's photograph, Migrant Mother. Uh, this might be a, a more familiar photograph to some of you. Um, while Migrant Mother is not on display at this time, um, it became an image that was very representative of the Great Depression. The subjects in both Lang's and Grannon's work are presented anonymously, and the intention of both is to show uh, a landscape and the faces of socioeconomic distress. Here are a few more images from Katie Grannon's series, The 99. And unlike the documentary work of Dorothea Lang or Margaret Burke White, who sought to invite change or show injustices, uh, the next three uh, works by photographers were created with a documentary approach for a more personal uh, investigation. Liz Atmodell brought her style of photography to the United States when she and her husband immigrated from Paris in 1937. She often took her handheld 35 millimeter camera to busy places such as the Promenade des Anglais uh, when she lived in Paris, or Coney Island, which is where the photo on display was taken, um, and that's the image on the left of the screen. The one on the right is a variation of um, that image. Modell tightly frames the main figure, focusing on the subject's face and body and clothing while removing most of the surrounding context. Her work unapologetically emphasizes people's idiosyncrasies in everyday situations. <clears throat> Lizette Modell later became a teacher and lecturer and inspired a generation of post-war photographers, including Diane Arbus, whose image is here. Arbus's work, along with the work of Lee Friedlander and Gary Winogrand, was featured in a 1967 exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art titled New Documents. These new documents were more aesthetically driven than politically charged, often relating to the status of the individual in an America's post-war consumer society. Arbus's work focused on people outside of the mainstream. 
such as this image on the top left of the screen, um, which is one of Arbus's better known works of a boy, a young boy playing with toy hand grenades, or the man in curlers holding a cigarette with manicured fingernails, or the image on the right side of the screen with uh, the hairdresser with an aesthetic of hair that seems to match her toy dog. Nan Golden's work is part of a tradition of contemporary art photography that is rooted in documentary uh, practices. This photograph is from her series Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which was originally displayed as a slideshow of over 700 slides and accompanied by a musical soundtrack. This body of work is an intimate photographic narrative of her family, friends, and lovers in the 1980s. Golden is known for her spontaneous sexual and personal photographs depicting LGBTQ relationships, explicit drug use, and the AIDS crisis. These are two other images from her series, Ballad of Sexual Dependency. The image on the left of the screen, um, uh, Golden has inserted herself into the work. She is the woman lying on the bed she describes her photographs as a visual diary and explains that, quote, there is no separation between me and what I photograph, end quote. Louise Dahl Wolf's creative approach to fashion photography helped shape the fashion industry. Hired by Carmel Snow in 1936, Dahl Wolf worked at Harper's Bazaar for 22 years between 1936 and 1958, during which time she influenced a slew of younger photographers, including Richard Avedon. She contributed 86 photographs for the cover of the magazine and this one is from June 1953. And she also contributed hundreds of other uh, color and black and white images that appeared inside the magazine. Including this black and white image of a model wearing Dior clothing on the left and the model Mary Jane Russell on the right. Dahl Wolf was a meticulous artist, often shooting on location using natural light and printing her work in color. Instead of saturating this interior scene, the one on display is on the left here, um, with floodlights, she allows sunshine to illuminate the model, leaving other parts of the room in shadows. Dahl Wolf's practices were revolutionary at the time in the 1930s and 40s when fashion photography was mostly done in studio and printed in black and white, such as this Edward Steichen studio photograph of fashion models on the right of the screen here, which was taken in 1930, likely for Vogue. Um, and it was in, uh, in a studio under bright lights and printed in black and white. I wanted to discuss lastly the um, two more works in the rotation that are by women artists whose work references feminism but in very different ways. Throughout her career, Betty Hahn has experimented with alternative processes 
on ordinary substrates and mixed media. Her photographic techniques employ the use of handmade processes, which bring focus to the materiality of the photographic object. These images are two from our collection here at the Georgieson Museum by Betty Hahn. The image on the left is a gum bichromate print, um, and the image on the right is a gum bichromate print on fabric with stitching, which is similar to the work that is on display here. Gum bichromate is a, process, a photographic printing process that requires the maker's hand to physically apply the uh, chemistry onto a paper or, in her case, fabric with a brush. In its heyday, uh, the gum bichromate process was used um, mainly in the late 1800s, very early 1900s, during the pictorialist movement, which I mentioned before was a time when uh, photographers were really advocating for the medium to be an art form. Han is bringing back this, now what we will call an alternative process. She intentionally left the brush strokes visible along the edges of the image to show her use of this medium. You can see uh, here and here. This work, which is the one on display down the hall, is uh, also a gum bichromate on fabric with stitching. Han hand-stitched areas into the image to highlight certain areas um, often highlighting perhaps the ordinary in her work. More stitching is a reference to femininity and the feminist issue that the maker of textiles and other um, crafts uh, have not been considered fine arts but rather women's domestic duties or hobbies. Stitching also brings a sense of materiality or objectness to the photograph. Outside of this frame, um, of its frame, this work has a, a depth to it uh, because fabric is folded over a board um, to mount the fabric. And uh, also interestingly, Han created this work while she was living in Rochester and working at the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. Conceptual artist Barbara Kruger uses text and image to question societal and cultural stereotypes. Her work relies on methods of mass communication uh, to challenge the viewer. Kruger puts appropriated advertising imagery into a new context. Up close, you can see a, uh, a halftone pattern in the hands. Again, I urge you to look at the work in the gallery. Um, well, the halftone pattern is a photomechanical process um, that you might see in a newspaper or a magazine. It's kind of a, a dotted, speckled look. Um, Han photographed a magazine or a newspaper and then printed it photographically, enlarged. The bold words address issues such as power, identity, feminism, and consumerism, and question gender or cultural stereotypes. Here, a male hand places a wedding ring onto a female hand. The bold text, you are a captive audience, refers to the socially conventional experience of a wedding, an event that is supposed to arouse extreme joy. Her large format work is meant to be confrontational. And these are two others that she is very well known for. 
And these are um, some snapshots from an installation at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. Here she uh, has removed an Im use of an image and is using only words. Um, the, I went and saw this a couple years ago, um, and the one on the bottom was one of my favorites, if that tells you anything about me. Um, and I wanted to end with a quote from Barbara Kruger. I'm interested in pictures and words because they have specific powers to define who we are and who we aren't. And I would like to thank you all for being a captive audience today. <laughs>